Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Brian Salter, lead pastor at LMPC. This episode is a Pillar and Ground Questions episode where we seek to provide biblical perspective for today's pressing questions. For a seven-week season, we're going to address questions of biblical sexuality by exploring the 12 statements that were established by the PCA's Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality. That report was overwhelmingly received at the 2021 General Assembly. These 12 statements affirm beautifully clear biblical doctrine, and they promote wonderful pastoral considerations and care. And so I'm thankful for this report. And today we're studying Statement 2, The Image of God. As always, in the show notes, you can find your way to this report and read it in its entirety, but you can also uh, just listen along. I'm going to read the statement on the image of God. We affirm that God created human beings in his image as male and female. And likewise, we recognize the goodness of the human body and the call to glorify God with our bodies. As a God of order and design, God opposes the confusion of man as woman and woman as man. While situations involving such confusion can be heartbreaking and complex, men and women should be helped to live in accordance with their biological sex. Nevertheless, we ought to minister compassionately to those who are sincerely confused and disturbed by their internal sense of gender identity. We recognize that the effects of the fall extend to the corruption of our whole nature, which may include how we think of our gender and its sexuality. Moreover, some persons in rare instances may possess an objective medical condition in which their anatomical development may be ambiguous or does not match their genetic chromosomal sex. Such persons are also made in the image of God and should live out their biological sex insofar as it can be known. Again, that's statement two on the image of God. I'll be brief today as we've recently spoken about the image of God in a previous episode on Pillar and Ground as we studied chapter four of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So if you have more questions about this statement, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode because we are very thorough in what it means to be the image of God. But first, this statement speaks to our createdness, the dignity of such, that God created human beings in his image as male and female. It affirms the goodness of the body and the call to glorify God with our bodies. You know, much sexual deviance, even as you would read in Corinthians letters, has to do with the body uh, is bad. The physical realm is bad. So who really cares what you do with it? Um, And we affirm the goodness of the body that God made us in physical form, that our Savior came in the flesh and took on flesh. We affirm the, the goodness of the body, as the scriptures in Corinthians tell us, that we are God's temple. His Spirit's been placed in us, and therefore glorify God with your bodies. And so there's a goodness to the body, to the physical, that's really important when it comes to sexual ethics, is the goodness of the physical world and the hope of redemption and resurrection that's coming. Now, I know many of you listening to this may know the passage that is the establishment of the image of God statement, but let's read it, Genesis 1, 26-27. Then God said, let us make man in our own image. After our likeness, 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In other words, God created mankind, humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Again, I'm, I'm not going to review all that it means to be the image of God. Go back to an earlier episode, please, for that. But one of the things that sexual differentiation of male and female does, it actually images God. See, the point is not that God is male or God is female or God is both. That's not the point of imaging God as male and female. Just like when we say our eyes image God, it, it doesn't mean God has eyes. It means our eyes picture something of the divine. And the differentiated genders image specific things about God. And they are necessary also for covenant marriage, as we heard last time. But the differentiated genders, specific male and female, they image specific things about God. The Bible uses language to describe God, uses male language. It also uses female language. Now, the the preponderance of language that it uses is, is male because often Yahweh is the covenant Lord, and that's a position of authority, and we understand uh, the Bible understands males in that position of authority. So the, the preponderance of describing God is with male terms like Father, Lord, uh, many others. But it's not because God is male or because God is female or because God is both. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchanging <laughs> But in the maleness and in the femaleness that he created, he's telling us things about himself. And that createdness is really important. And that that maintaining of the establishment of two genders is telling us things about God. And to confuse that is to confuse our understanding of God himself. The statement goes on to say that there is confusion As a God of order and design, God opposes the confusion of man as woman and woman as man. So it does say there is confusion, but it's not the confusion God endorses. He's a God of order and design. While situations involving such confusion can be heartbreaking and complex, men and women should be helped to live in accordance with their biological sex. Simply put, The rampant confusion over gender is not representative of God who designed the world and revealed his creation order. God has no intention that we live in confusion on these matters, and thus he's kindly given to us such clear revelation. However, as sinners in a fallen world, people have been sinned against. And oftentimes the way people are sinned against leads to confusion. And while we understand God is not the author of this confusion, we should be compassionate when we face people's confusion. The current confusion over gender does not point to God's revelation. Instead, I think it points to two things. God's judgment. In Romans 1, he says he hands us over. And part of that handing over is a handing over to a state of confusion. It's due to evil's tyranny and misery. The confusion is based on a lack of willingness to surrender to a divine authority, the one God. And out of that, evil brings tyranny and misery to people's lives. And that's where the confusion 
has landed upon us. Now, that being said, we ought to have a posture of compassion towards the confused, a posture of compassion towards those with gender dysphoria. And the statement says as much. It says, nevertheless, we ought to minister compassionately to those who are sincerely confused and disturbed by their internal sense of gender identity. We recognize that the effects of the fall extend to the corruption of our whole nature, which may include how we think of our own gender and sexuality. This statement calls us to compassionate, gentle, dependent ministry to the disturbed and confused, and the scripture requires that. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 says, The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Now listen, though it says those who oppose him, this servant of the Lord, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant. Okay, do you see the dependence and the gentleness? We must be gentle and dependent, gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. We ought to minister compassionately to those who are sincerely confused. And further, though we're saddened by the current rampant state of gender confusion, we should not be surprised. We recognize the effects of the fall extend to the corruption of our whole nature. Certainly, it would affect how it could affect how people think of gender and sexuality. Westminster Shorter Catechism 18 says that the sinfulness of that estate wherein a man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin. The entire nature is corrupt, so while we're saddened by the confusion, we should not be surprised because of our doctrine of sin. And finally, some clarity about the last two statements. It says, in rare instances, may a person may possess an objective medical condition in which their anatomical development may be ambiguous or does not match their genetic chromosomal sex. I want to make sure you understand that what the statement is saying is different than an internal sense of identity not being in accord with biological sex. It is stating the fact of a rare, objective medical condition, and those persons born with that rare condition are in the image of God and should live out their biological sex insofar as it can be known. Our doctrine of the image of God, along with all that we'll study concerning original sin and the further statements, helps us to understand that all humans indeed have dignity and should be treated as much, but that all humans are also sinners and sufferers based on our doctrine of sin. Holding both of these allows us to move towards people with compassion and gentleness. Gentleness. Yes, people have sinned, but they've also been sinned against. And with revelation and with hope of redemption, we move towards them with compassion and gentleness. We must not be merely victims of a fallen world, but recognize our agency to sin and lead people graciously towards repentance according to God's revealed word. So that's statement two, the image of God. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pillar and Ground. We look forward to further episodes on these 12 statements.